our scripture reading, our Old Testament reading, is Psalm 133. Our New Testament passage will come from Acts 2. Psalm 133. And as you're turning, I remind you that this is God's holy word. Let's give our reverent attention to it. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then from Acts 2, Acts 2, beginning at verse 42. Again, let's give our reverent attention now to God's holy word. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, for many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Happy Father's Day, Cedar Springs. So good to be with you this morning. Six centuries before Jesus, Babylonian armies sacked Jerusalem desecrated her temple, dragged her people across the Arabian desert, dumped them into refugee camps across Iraq. And that began a period that we call the exile. It was a time when God's people were displaced from their home in Jerusalem. The life of faith in Jerusalem revolved around the temple. And so you might imagine this created a, quite a, a theological and spiritual and even an existential crisis because now the way that they had done worship for years was not possible. And so here they are by the banks of rivers and refugee camps in, in, uh, in, in Iraq. And they're, they're wondering, what does it look like to worship now? How can we be the people of God in a place like this when we can't worship the way that we used to? Well, Christians in the time of COVID, at least in the West, find ourselves in a, in a similar situation. In a, in a way, we are a church in exile and that uh, the ways that we have loved to worship, we, we can't really do right now. And even when we do get together, it's not quite the same as what uh, we had before and hopefully we'll have again. So what does it look like to, to be a faithful church, a faithful Christian in a time of exile? Well, in Acts 2, 42 to 47, there are four essential practices 
for the church in exile. And these practices in the early church took places in, in homes. Uh, you, you didn't have to have a, a, a corporate gathering, as important as, as that is. And no matter what happens in the world, these are practices that believers have continued in for 2,000 years, whether they could gather in large groups or not. So let's look at them and uh, kind of get a feel for what a faithful church in exile might look like. Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that phrase, devoted themselves, means to persist in, to persevere in. These were were practices of the way of Jesus that the the early Christians persevered in. They didn't stop pursuing them. The first one is study. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, The apostles faithfully pass on the traditions, the teachings of Jesus. They are the the guardians of the tradition. They preserve and protect the tradition. But that's not all. The the word apostle means sent one or missionary. And so apostles are people sent on a mission for God. And so apostolic teaching is also teaching that takes the teachings of Jesus and applies that teaching to the new context of the mission field, the new challenges and questions of the mission field. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, a Latin American commentator, he says, apostolic doctrine is by definition missionary doctrine and open and flexible doctrine oriented towards mission. You see this across the book of Acts and you see that the apostles are always working to apply the teachings of Jesus to these new challenges that they face. Acts 10 through 11 is is a good example. Uh, God gives a Roman military leader a dream. He says, go find this guy, Peter. The Roman military leader is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. God gives Peter a dream and says, essentially, hey, you got to rethink this whole way of relating to Gentiles. I'm doing something new. And Peter says, no, no, no. Jews don't relate to Gentiles. The dream persists. And eventually Peter realizes he is supposed to share the gospel with Gentiles. The Roman military leader shows up. Peter preaches. The military leader and his family come to faith. Peter uh, sends word to the apostles in Jerusalem. Hey, guess what? Gentiles are coming to faith. The apostles are furious. This isn't supposed to happen. They're not ready to go to the Gentiles. Peter explains the supernatural dream. The apostles go back to scripture. They reflect on the teachings of Jesus and their understanding expands. And they realize that actually this is what God has intended all along. And it wasn't so much that they changed as expanded their theology to meet the new needs of the mission field. So they they say, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So apostolic teaching is both conservative and progressive in a way. It's conservative in that it It guards the ancient tradition and passes it down unchanged. Apostolic teaching is also missional or progressive in that it's always trying to apply the teaching to the new challenge of the mission field. Well, the church in exile 
whether we're gathering like this virtually or in a large group or a small group, needs to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to persist in it, to labor in it, to remain in it, to, to just make that a big part of our life together. Luke says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So this was an interesting part of the teaching uh, under the apostles, is that they performed miracles, mostly healings, as they taught the word, and, and a sense of phobos, holy fear and awe, was around the, the teaching ministry. They would come together and not just take notes, but things would happen. People's hearts would be opened, needs would be surfaced, prayer would happen, and healing would occur. Now, Christians disagree on whether or not signs and wonders are for the church today. Some think uh, they were just for the first century apostles as authenticating marks of the gospel. Others say, no, they could be for today. I think all of us would agree, though, with this vision of what can happen when we gather together around the apostolic teaching, when we come together to study the word, that there is a sense of the Spirit's presence and that we're not just kind of taking notes or, 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 or blandly listening, but somehow the word comes alive in the context of that gathering in your Sunday school class, in your living room, as you hear a sermon and apply it with a friend over coffee, as you talk about a sermon with your, with your kids, that the spirit breaks through and needs are expressed. And hearts are open and people are vulnerable and you pray for each other and there is healing and freedom. I think that's a beautiful vision of studying God's word in any age. The second essential practice of a church in exile is fellowship. You may be familiar with that word. It's koinonia in the Greek. It means sharing in. Uh, this early church shared in the common life of Christ in the Spirit, and they enjoyed that. But that was not the only way the word was used in uh, the first century Palestine. It also meant business partnership. In Luke 5, the, the Greek says that James and John were koinonoi. They were business partners. And so the idea also has uh, this sense of being a part of a common enterprise together. And so I, I want you to, to listen to this. This is important. Christian fellowship is more than warm feelings with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian fellowship is also a shared life in the spirit around a common mission. That's a key part of Christian fellowship. Think of the small gathering of which you are regularly a part, and I, I, I hope that you are. Uh, I, I saw an announcement for Summers McMurray will help you get plugged into one. You have wonderful uh, Sunday school classes here that I'm sure will be getting going again in some fashion. Uh, beloved, you need to be a part and if you're a shut-in, of course, that might take place virtually or in a different way. But this is a very important part of the Christian life. Now, I want you to think about that smaller gathering you're in. Do you have any sense of shared mission and purpose? 
one of the reasons this early gathering was so powerful is that they, they were on a mission for Jesus. They were going into the world to share the gospel and to meet the needs of their neighbors. And they knew it and it was tough and they needed each other. And that's why they kept coming together because they were on mission. Here's what happens if you just come to your Sunday school class, if you just come to your small group or even come to church and there's no sense of shared mission, it just gets real boring and inward focused and the life drains out. Part of fellowship is shared life in the spirit around a common mission. And so you might, you might talk to the, the gathering that you're in uh, and just ask, do we have a purpose bigger than just hanging out? It might create a good conversation. Well, verses 44 and 45 give a glimpse of what this shared life together looked like. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, they did not sell all their goods and put them in a common purse. The verbs in this verse are in the imperfect, which implies an ongoing action. And so what was happening is that the community gave as needs came up. Uh, First century Palestine uh, knew poverty in a way that the modern world rarely does. Life was dangerous. It was short. Many of the members of the early Christian churches were refugees because remember, they had come from all over the Roman Empire for Pentecost and then become Christian. So imagine that you're meeting in a a gathering in in somebody's home and this family that's maybe from Cyprus, uh, the father's been working in construction and he dies in an accident. Well, what, what would your home group, your gathering do? Well, you you wouldn't go to your ATM to to get money for their rent. You'd sell a goat or a cart uh, so that you'd have resources to meet their needs. And that's what's happening um, in this early fellowship. So again, I want to ask you an important question. Are you a part of a smaller gathering where you're coming together around the word, but But it's not just filling in blanks. There's actually a shared life, so much so that when Fred loses his job or Martha goes through a divorce or Sam goes into a dark depression, you actually know it. And you as a community rally to care for that dear one in their need. You know, years ago, I was in a small group for a long time, and we were just having a great Bible study. I think it was Romans, and man, it was outstanding. And if I remember the story right, at at the end of it, one of the guys said, "Uh, you know, I'm not coming back. And he said, why? He said, I'm divorced. And we'd gone through this beautiful study of Romans while the guy's whole life was falling apart. In a, in, a, in a healthy church, there's both that deep study, but there's also sharing and vulnerability and the meeting of needs. 
The third essential practice of the church in exile is the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper. Jesus instructed us to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. Here's what he said on his last night on earth, Luke 22. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. You know, when I, when I think of what people have told me they miss the most after these hundred days of exile from normal worship, uh, what I've heard the most is the Eucharist. And that's another name for the same thing, the Lord's Supper, communion. Eucharist just means to give thanks. And uh, I love the way that, that uh, Cedar Springs is doing it. We'll do it again today, and you've got midweek services. But it's really important to be a part of a gathering that's regularly taking Eucharist together. Even if COVID comes back and we can't gather at all for a long time or God forbid, whatever happens, this is one of the essential practices of the church is we need to come in and partake together or even go to our homes to do it if we have to. And actually, in our church at All Souls, that's kind of what we're doing right now. We've not yet decided to come back. Um, and so we are training our small group leaders, and uh, they're having Eucharist there. And uh, when word came out, actually we're meeting with them all tonight to, to talk with them about how to do that. And when word came out that uh, our small groups were going to be starting to share in Eucharist under the training and leadership of the, the leaders of the church, uh, one of our members wrote me this. She said, Doug, we have spent many years trying harder to live the Christian life. And this trying harder way of living has been so futile and exhausting. Over the last several years, our eyes have been opened to the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, as a physical way we can regularly participate in the life of Christ and receive him to be sustained and nourished in the Christian life. We come to the table with empty hands, but our hearts and our minds are filled with faith, trust, belief that he will meet, nourish, and sustain us with his presence, with his very life in the mystery of the bread and cup. He gave us himself at the cross. He continues to give himself in the rhythm of the Eucharist. Like for us, life for us has the same difficulty, but his nearness and presence are experienced by faith in the supper. I look forward to taking the supper again as my body and heart and mind grow weary of walking out life in the kingdom of man. 
I look forward to taking the supper again and the mystery of engaging his presence in the bread and wine, being nourished by his life and sustained for the journey until I can come to the table with his body, the church again. (laughs) I hope this helps. So is that a part of your fellowship, your, your regular practice as a believer? Uh, it needs to be, and I know your, your leaders are doing a great job to try to make that possible for you. Well, the fourth essential practice of the church in exile is prayer. And Luke doesn't give a lot of detail here. Uh, we'll see in the book of Acts uh, that there's uh, a, a lot of praying going on all through the book. Praise and worship seem to be a part of the prayer, Acts 2.46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So praying together was an essential practice of the early church. Uh, Luke ends his description of these four practices almost with an afterthought. He says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. (laughs) I'd love that to be a description of my ministry. And what's always struck me about that is they didn't have an evangelism program. It's just that these small gatherings of believers centered on the rhythms of study, fellowship, prayer, and Eucharist were so drenched with the power and presence of God that it just drew other people to him. It's a beautiful picture. Now, I want to point this out. In, in, in these early days of the church's life, the earliest Christians enjoyed both larger gatherings in the temple and smaller gatherings in homes. But this only lasted a few months. Persecution came. Many, if not most, believers were driven out of Jerusalem. And for the next 300 years, the church met only in homes, only in smaller gatherings. And today, believers in countries without religious freedom, that's still how they meet in house churches. The fastest growing church in the world is a house church network in Iran. So whatever happens in our world, we can still be a faithful church in exile by gathering wherever we can gather for study, fellowship, Eucharist, and prayer. And I just just want to say that needs to be a part of your spiritual practice. The corporate gathering is so rich and so important. But it's, it's kind of built on that DNA of the smaller fellowship. And I know you have a rich network of those. I think that's why you've been so healthy in these three years is because of that rich network. But if you've drifted out of that network, if it's sort of faded during the season, brother, sister, you need to come back. You need to push back in. You need to contact Summers or call a friend and say, we need to start walking more closely together again. You know, uh, imagine a student applying to a doctoral program in economics at UT, and he sits down with the, the professor, and the student says, you know, I know you require 
coursework and regular meeting with the supervisor and lots of papers. But tell you what, I don't really need that. I'm just going to hit a couple of podcasts, uh, maybe have wine with my friends every once in a while and talk about these things. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be too strict or, or, or all kind of legalistic about this. So we're cool. That'll get me there. Mm-mm. It won't. And the professor will say, um, for thousands of years, our guild has discerned the practices that everyone must do to become a good scholar. And you're kidding yourself if you think you can just kind of listen to a podcast and get there. And I think something similar needs to be said about the church I know you can't wait to meet again. I can't wait to meet again. But if this corporate gathering is your only spiritual practice, it's not enough. Beloved, you need to be in some kind of smaller gathering where there's regular study of the word, prayer, fellowship, And maybe you take the Eucharist here, but that's got to be a part of your life together. And and I know some of you are uh, shut in and and, uh, not able to do that. And of course, it's, it's a different season for you. And that takes place in other ways, virtually and things like that. But this is not an option, my friend. And one of the greatest gifts you can give to this outstanding minister that's coming is to make a commitment to be that kind of people because the richness that happens here on Sunday flows out of the richness of what happens during the week together. The church can flourish in persecution and in plague by leaning into smaller gatherings. But having said that, I also, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I believe there is great value in the larger gathering. Whenever Christians have been free to gather, most of them have. Why? Because we need it. It's hard to just have a handful of people to go through life with. I've been watching that the house church movement for 35 years, and I've always been intrigued, and I've wondered, is that the wave of the future? And at least in the West, what I find is that so often when all you've got is six other people, it starts with a flurry of energy and joy and excitement, usually with a little bit of anti-institutionalism, and we're not going to be that doggone institutional church anymore. And then about two years in, there's conflict. Three years in, the leaders get tired. Four years in, somebody has a car wreck. Five years in, somebody has a mental illness. And at six years, they're done and burned out. I think in a perfect context, the smaller gatherings are supported by the richness of the broader community gathered. I have grieved being with you and my own people in worship as much as I've grieved anything in my life. I do not like looking at you through a camera. 
I like to see your face when you come to communion. I like to hear your voice sing. I'm so excited for you. I can't wait to see what God's going to do through this wonderful ministry you have. But I've been sad too because the times I've been with you in the winter, the worship was so rich. So rich. You have something so beautiful here. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss that. We have something very beautiful where we are, but we're kind of down on a mission field. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful taste of heaven. It does matter. It does matter. What I'm saying is, if for some reason life takes away all this, you can still flourish by gathering in a smaller group, studying God's word, praying, taking the Eucharist, and fellowshipping around a common purpose. Let's pray. Lord, I've often prayed Psalm 137 during this season. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us the songs of Zion, but how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we enjoy Eucharist through a screen? How can we praise you through a mask? We are indeed in exile. But Lord, you are giving us tastes of heaven, tastes of joy, tastes of praise. And I, I just want to, I want to thank you right now for every worship leader in our city that's trying so hard for just to create spaces where we can be the people of God and worship in this season. <laughs> they are doing everything they can. I know Matt at All Souls is working around the clock. I know Brandon and the team here is working so hard and it will, it probably will when they come back, when we come back on, in July, it'll feel a little bit like when the exiles came back and some of them said, you know, this wasn't quite like the old temple. Well, in those first days, yeah, it's not going to be quite like that. Lord, I just want to pray a blessing and encouragement over our worship leaders as they try to teach us to praise in exile. We ask this in your name. Amen.